heart attacks because over many years their arteries harden. It takes time. And the same is true when we allow our hearts to harden against God. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But Jesus, well, he has a surefire way to cure that. It happens in an instant. It's called a change of heart. Diamond, and thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works. Today we're going to take a look at the power of having a change of heart, although the reality of that may surprise you because none of us, neither you nor me, can ever perform open heart surgery on ourselves. So let's head into God's Word and please do stay tuned because in just a few minutes I'll be telling you about our latest life application booklet. It's called God's Kindness towards you and I'd love to send you a free copy to help you actually experience the grace and the mercy of God firsthand so that you can become all that he made you to be. Hey, great to be with you again today. And today we're continuing in our series about having a powerful, deep relationship with Jesus. The series is called There's a Knock at the Door. Now, last weekend, I was really blessed to have a great break. Love doing what I do. I really love being able to spend these few minutes with you on the program each week. But you know something? I really love having a rest. I like that break over the weekend. You know, you work hard all week, at least I do. Generally, they're long hours. And although when you love doing what you do, it doesn't feel like work, come the end of the week, have to tell you, I am ready for a rest. And one of the highlights of my weekend is waking up on Saturday morning and planning a date with my beautiful wife. Now that our kids have grown up, we're able to just go out on a little date Saturday mornings to a coffee shop. Mostly it's only toast and coffee, but it's something we do for us. We chat, we read the paper, we just spend time together. I'd have to say it's the most special time of the week for me. But before you get the idea that we're a perfect couple with a perfect marriage, let me tell you, I am not a perfect husband, as much as I'd like to be, and sometimes Jackie isn't the perfect wife. I can be such an insensitive clod sometimes, and that can bruise Jackie's feelings. And yet even though we're two imperfect people, sure, we're trying to honour God, sure, we're doing our best to love each other, but despite our imperfections, we love each other, and our relationship is intact and hopefully growing deeper and deeper with the passing years. So how is that? How is it that two imperfect people can grow in their relationship? Well, here's what I've tried to do in our marriage. Whenever I get it wrong, whenever I'm insensitive or, or I make a mistake or I don't take Jackie's feelings into account, whatever it is, that kind of cuts me to the quick. When I realise I've done wrong, and hopefully I'm making fewer mistakes these days than I was, say, five years ago, but when I realise I've made a mistake, I say, sorry, and I try to mend my ways. Now, saying sorry isn't something that comes naturally to me, and learning to say sorry has been one of the hardest things for me to do in my life. Because sorry is about humbling yourself. Sorry is about admitting that you've made a mistake. Sorry is about taking the first step to mend the relationship. And yet, as we live our lives together, Jackie and I, best we can, making mistakes, saying sorry, pulling each other closer, the relationship grows. If, on the other hand, we just made mistakes and never, ever said sorry, never apologised, never had a softening and a changing of heart, tell you what, the relationship would pull further and further and further apart. And that's how divorce happens. Because hearts grow first lukewarm, then eventually hard and cold, 
and it takes time. But before you know it, there's no love there anymore. There's no relationship there anymore. Now, the reason I've shared that with you today is that it's a powerful metaphor, if you will, or a parallel in understanding the relationship between God and ourselves. Last week on the program, we spent some time understanding this concept of Jesus knocking at the door of our hearts. He loves us more than a man or a woman can ever love one another. He he loves us with a powerful, tender, sacrificial love. And yet you and I, whilst once we may have been on fire for him, have this ability to, to grow lukewarm in our relationship with him. Let's just take another look at what he has to say about that. Revelations chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, look, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I have need of nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice, open the door. I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As I said, we've spent quite a bit of time taking a look at what Jesus is saying to us through that passage. But the bit that I'd like to unpack this week on the program is the bit about repentance. Because to tell you the truth, when I first became a Christian almost 20 years ago now, I remember those Christians talking about repentance. And and can I be perfectly honest with you here? I thought to myself, what? I mean, it sounds like a world from from the 1950s, this kind of religious, moralising kind of word, this old-fashioned concept being spouted by an out-of-date, irrelevant church. Repentance? Oh, give me a break. I'm not sure how you react to the word, but me, every time I still hear it today, it has that kind of feeling of of a religious-y kind of word to me. And yet its meaning is anything but that. Can I go back to what I shared with you about Jackie and myself earlier? In our imperfection, the only way we keep our marriage relationship together, the only way we keep growing in our love for one another, the only way we get to look forward to our special date on Saturday mornings and being together is constantly to repent, constantly to admit that we've done wrong, to admit we've failed, to apologise to one another, to mend our ways. And that right there is exactly what repentance is. And so when Jesus is calling those of us whose hearts have grown lukewarm towards him, those of us who've become distracted with all the trinkets and baubles this world dangles before us, what is it he says? What does he call you and me to do? He's saying to us right here and right now, be earnest therefore and repent. Literal meaning of that original word for repent, here it is, word for word from my Greek lexicon, to change one's mind for better, heartily to amend with the abhorrence of one's past sins. In other words, to get a grip, to realise that what we're doing is wrong, to have the guts to admit that to ourselves, and having had that change of heart, to change what it is that we're doing. Now, isn't that exactly what I just described in our marriage relationship before? Isn't that what keeps a marriage together? Absolutely it is. So repenting isn't some old-fashioned religious word. It's one of the most... In fact, let me say this, it's the single most important thing in maintaining healthy relationships and growing strong relationships. 
And the thing I love, or one of the things I love most about Jesus is he doesn't want us to be religious with him. He, he doesn't want us to go through the motions with him. He wants a relationship. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to come in and have a meal with us. And so the key to unlocking that door from the inside is you and me having an earnest change of heart. The key to that relationship is taking that knock at the door seriously, being earnest, because Jesus is standing there knocking, wanting to be close to us, being earnest and having a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of ways, because he stands and he knocks. As I said earlier, this series of messages is called There's a Knock at the Door. And of course, all the messages are available online if you've missed any of them at ChristianityWorks.com. Now, the whole point, the crux of what we're hearing Jesus say to us in all of this is that because we live here in this, this physical world with all its distractions, our hearts can grow lukewarm towards him. And that's the one thing he doesn't want to see happen. What he wants is a close, intimate, personal relationship with each one of us. Let's just have another listen to this powerful word from Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Let's just listen to this as though Jesus was saying it to you and to me. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and, and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. You don't realise that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into you and eat with you and you with me. See the whole point? Relationship, not religion. And our part in that relationship is this earnest repenting thing that Jesus talks about. And we're going to unpack that some more because, in a sense, that's our small part in this transaction. I was reading something interesting the other day, something else that Jesus said when he was walking the dusty roads of first century Israel. He actually explained what the purpose, or one of the key purposes, of all his miracles was. Now, of course, these miracles of healing brought amazing blessing and relief to one or two people who were involved each time. OK, sometimes it was a lot more than one or two people. But if you were blind and he gave you back your sight, I mean, can you imagine? If you were ostracised, an outcast leper, and he healed you of your leprosy, I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be able to go back to life with your family and your friends again? So there was an immediate blessing to the recipients of those miracles. But those miracles were meant to speak something into the wider community. They were meant to elicit a response from the wider community. Have a listen to what Jesus says about this. We're reading from Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for them than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in, in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. 
At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. Now, Jesus is having a real go at some pretty major cities here. So what's he on about? Well, he's saying, look, you've seen with your own eyes the miracles I did in your midst, and still you wander off on your own merry way, ignoring my Father who sent me. You look back on the cities of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, cities that you know perished because of their evil, and you scorn them. But if they'd seen the miracles you've seen, if they'd seen the blessing of God poured out on them the way it's been poured out on you, got to tell you, they would have repented a long time ago. You think you're clever, Jesus is saying. You, you think you're an advanced community with all your commerce and your wealth and all the stuff that's going on, but the blessing of God came close to you and you still have not repented. You still have not had an earnest change of mind. Well, there's a reason for that. Because somehow in his wisdom, God reveals himself to those who are prepared to humble themselves and admit they're wrong. Those who are like little children. But from the proud, those who think they have all the answers, those who look down their noses from their positions of wealth and power, from those people, he hides himself. And as we've seen, repentance isn't some old-fashioned 1950s religious concept. Repentance means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, to be honest enough to admit that what we're doing is wrong, to turn away from the wrong and back to God and start living a life pleasing to him. In fact, this whole thing was right at the heart of Jesus' message. It's what he came to tell us. From the very commencement of his public ministry, we're told that Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Why? Is it because he's wanting to wreak havoc on us? Is it because God is somehow some despotic God who wants to punish us? No. Whom did he send? Jesus. What was Jesus doing? He was showing kindness and love and mercy and power by healing people. Just, just think about that. He did a few other miracles. Water into wine, feeding the 5,000 with a few fish and loaves, walking on water, stilling a storm. But by far the greatest number of Jesus' miracles were healing people and casting out demons. He came to bless and to save, not to punish and condemn. But there was and remains a point to all this blessing. The point is that it should bring us to our senses. The point is that we should take notice of God, this God who loves us and wants to bless us, and wake up to ourselves and admit to ourselves our wrongs, turn away from those wrongs and turn back to him. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives us a neat, powerful executive summary of what Jesus was saying to those unrepentant cities. It comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Don't you realise God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, we by and large, we want God's kindness. We by and large want God's blessing. We by and large want God to show up when we're in the shtuk and we need pulling out. But more often than not, the last thing we want to do is to repent, to turn away from the things that we know are wrong, to give our lives, our whole lives, every part of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our gifts, our abilities, our time, our resources, our finances, our thoughts, our sexuality, our, our everything, our all in all, over to Jesus. But unless we do that, how else do we expect a rich, powerful relationship to happen with God through Jesus? How do we expect to live in the blessing of God? The whole point of God's kindness towards us 
is to get us to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life, to repent and bring our lives back to him. Does Jesus come to us with a carrot or a stick, you might ask? Well, what he's saying to those unrepentant cities, what, what he's saying to you and me here and now in this place is that he comes to us first and foremost with blessing, with deeds of power, with love, with healing, with kindness, with forbearance. Because as A.W. Tozer once wrote, God just doesn't have mercy, God is mercy. And as the Bible tells us, God doesn't just have love, God is love. But he also warns us that one day, one day there is a stick coming, one day it will be too late, one day judgment will fall. But for the time being, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. There have been times when I've listened to some preacher carrying on about repenting and changing our ways and all that stuff, a bit like I have been over the last 20 minutes or so. And you know the thoughts that most commonly would spring to my mind? I'd start thinking of all the people I knew who needed to do some serious repenting, all the people who defended me, the, the people who rubbed me the wrong way, those sinners over there, boy, do they need to repent something fierce. If only they would repent, my world would be such a better place. I wonder whether there isn't a bit of that in all of us. This must be for the next guy, because I'm practically perfect in every way. And so as we come towards the end of our time together today, I just feel to speak into this for a moment. The more grey hairs I get on my head, the more I've come to realise that for most of us, our default position is that we are pretty perfect, and so this call for repentance can't possibly be for us. It must be for that person over there. I definitely know they need to repent. At least that's how I started my walk with Jesus nearly 20 years ago. But since that, what I've experienced is like, like God peeling the layers of the onion back as he goes deeper and deeper and deeper in dealing with a sin in my life, in healing me from the sin that's robbed me of life. The more he does that, the more aware we become of our own sinful nature. In fact, it's something you see in the writings of Paul the Apostle. He wrote almost half the books in the New Testament, and it's the ones that he wrote towards the end of his time where he shows a much greater awareness of his own sinfulness than in the earlier ones. I mean, by the time he's about halfway through writing the various epistles over a period of years, this is what he writes about himself in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I know nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh, I can will what's right, I just can't do it. For I don't do the good that I want, but the evil that I don't want is what I do. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that whenever I want to do what's good, evil lies close at hand. See, I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, but I see in my members another law at work with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? They say that the first step in dealing with alcoholism is to admit that you're an alcoholic. That's why at every AA meeting, a person will stand up and say, Hi, my name's Fred. I'm an alcoholic. And the same is true of any sin. The first step is always admitting our sin, being real with ourselves, being honest with ourselves, not cutting ourselves yet more slack, not, not coming up with yet more excuses. Have you noticed how good we are at excusing our own sin? 
Have you noticed how we rationalise our own sin away? How we say, well, you know, I was tired or oh, that person just annoyed me and I couldn't help it and, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. I'll sweep it under the carpet. <laughs> Friend, that's what we do. And so we continue on in our sin, not realising that the whole point of God's kindness towards us is that he wants us to repent. The whole point of God's kindness is to give us a new life that each day more and more and more is freer from the consequences of our sin. Each day it becomes a better life, a more enjoyable life, a life with more impact for good, a life with more impact for God. Do you see? So I just wonder whether today isn't the very day that we need to let God's word be like a mirror to our face whether today isn't the day that you and I finally say to ourselves, wretched man that I am, or or wretched woman that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, God is calling us to a frank admission. And in our frank admission, if we cast ourselves on the grace and the mercy, on the unmerited favour and kindness and forgiveness of God, There is the answer, because as surely as God made little green apples, unless and until we do that, the ravages of our sin will continue to tear our lives apart. Come on, let's have God's word as a mirror to our face. The ravages of our sin, the consequences of our sin, are going to tear our lives apart until we finally repent, until we finally go to God with the admission that we are wrong, that we can't help ourselves, and that we need his power to change. Before we go, I'd like to tell you about a free gift that we'd love to send you to help you experience the power of God more and more in your life. Each month, Bernie writes a new life application booklet around the sorts of issues that we all deal with in life. It's designed to take you deeper into God's Word and then to help you live out what you've discovered. It's about helping you experience God's love and power in your faith walk. To request the latest e-booklet, visit ChristianityWorks.org and you'll see that free offer towards the top of the homepage. I'm believing that it'll be a mighty blessing to you. Again, that web address is ChristianityWorks.org. I'm Jennifer. You've been listening to Christianity Works with Bernie Diamet, and we'll catch you again next time. <laughs>